Chapter 6b of Anticipations. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christopher Taylor. Anticipations by H. G. Wells. Chapter 6b. Such adventures may rescue pride and honor, may cause momentary dismay in the victor and palliate disaster, but they will not turn back the advance of the victors, or twist inferiority into victory. Presently the advance will resume. With that advance the phase of indecisive contest will have ended, and the second phase of the new war, the business of forcing submission, will begin. This should be more easy in the future even than it has proved in the past, in spite of the fact that central governments are now elusive, and small bodies of rifle-armed guerrillas far more formidable than ever before. It will probably be brought about in the civilized country by the seizure of the vital apparatus of the urban regions, the water supply, the generating stations for electricity, which will supply all the heat and warmth of the land, and the chief ways used in food distribution. Through these expedients, even while the former war is still in progress, an irresistible pressure upon the local population will be possible, and it will be easy to subjugate or to create afresh local authorities, who will secure the invader from any danger of a guerrilla warfare upon his rear. Through that sort of an expedient, an even very obdurate loser will be got down to submission, area by area, with the destruction of its military apparatus and the prospective loss of its water and food supply, however. The defeated, civilized state will probably be willing to seek terms as a whole and bring the war to a formal close. In cases where, instead of contiguous frontiers, the combatants are separated by the sea, the aerial struggle will probably be preceded or accompanied by a struggle for the command of the sea. Of this warfare there have been many forecasts. In this, as in all the warfare of the coming time, imaginative foresight a perpetual alteration of tactics, a perpetual production of unanticipated devices will count enormously. Other things being equal, victory will rest with the force mentally most active. What type of ship may chance to be prevalent when the great naval wars comes is hard guessing. But I incline to think that the naval architects of the ablest peoples will concentrate more and more upon speed and upon range and penetration, and, above all, upon precision of fire. I seem to see a light type of ironclad, armored thickly only over its engines and magazines, murderously equipped, and with a ram, as alert and deadly as a striking snake. In the battles of the open she will have little to fear from the slow, fumbling treacheries of the submarine. She will take as little heed of the chance of a torpedo as a barefooted man in battle does of the chance of a fallen dagger in his path. Unless I know nothing of my own blood, the English and Americans will prefer to catch their enemies in ugly weather or at night, and then they will fight to ram. The struggle on the high seas between any two naval powers, except perhaps the English and American, who have both quite unparalleled opportunities for coaling, will not last more than a week or so. One or other force will be destroyed at sea, driven into its ports and blockaded there, or cut off from its supply of coal or other force generator, and hunted down to fight or surrender. An inferior fleet that tries to keep elusively at sea will always find a superior fleet between itself and coal, and will either have to fight at once, or be shot into surrender as it lies helpless on the water. Some commerce-destroying enterprise on the part of the loser may go on, but I think the possibilities of that sort of thing are greatly exaggerated. The world grows smaller and smaller. The telegraph and telephone go everywhere. 
Wireless telegraphy opens wider and wider possibilities to the imagination. And how the commerce destroyer is to go on for long without being marked down, headed off, cut off from coal, and forced to fight or surrender, I do not see. The commerce destroyer will have a very short run. It will have to be an exceptionally good and costly ship in the first place. It will be finally sunk or captured, and altogether, I do not see how that sort of thing will pay when once the command of the sea is assured. A few weeks will carry the effective frontier of the stronger power up to the coastline of the weaker, and permit the secure resumption of the oversea trade of the former, and then will open a second phase of naval warfare, in which the submarine may play a larger part. I must confess that my imagination, in spite even of spurring, refuses to see any sort of submarine doing anything but suffocate its crew and founder at sea. It must involve physical inconvenience of the most demoralizing sort simply to be in one for any length of time. A first-rate man who has been breathing carbonic acid and oil vapor under a pressure of four atmospheres becomes presently a second-rate man. Imagine yourself in a submarine that has ventured a few miles out of port. Imagine that you have a headache and nausea, and that some ship of the cobra type is flashing itself and its searchlights about whenever you come up to the surface, and promptly tearing down on your descending bubbles with a ram, trailing perhaps a tail of grapples or a net as well. Even if you get their boat, these nicely aerated men you are fighting know they have a four-to-one chance of living, while for your submarine to be got is certain death. You may, of course, throw out a torpedo or so, with as much chance of hitting vitally as you would have if you were blindfolded, turn round three times, and told to fire revolver shots at a charging elephant. The possibility of sweeping for a submarine with a sane would be vividly present in the minds of a submarine crew. If you are near shore, you will probably be near rocks, an unpleasant complication in a hurried dive. There would probably, very soon, be boats out too, Seeking with a machine gun or pom-pom for a chance at your occasionally emergent conning tower. In no way can a submarine be more than purblind. It will be, in fact, practically blind. Given a derelict ironclad on a still night within sight of land, a carefully handled submarine might succeed in groping its way to it and destroying it. But then it would be much better to attack such a vessel and capture it boldly with a few desperate men on a tug. At the utmost the submarine will be used in narrow waters, in rivers, or to fluster or destroy ships in harbor, or with poor-spirited crews. That is to say, it will simply be an added power in the hands of the nation that is predominant at sea. And even then, it can be merely destructive, while a sane and high-spirited fighter will always be dissatisfied if, with an indisputable superiority of force, he fails to take. Footnote a curious result might very possibly follow a success of submarines on the part of a naval power finally found to be weaker and defeated. The victorious power might decide that a narrow sea was no longer, under the new conditions, a comfortable boundary line, and might insist on marking its boundaries along the high-water mark of its adversary's adjacent coasts. End footnote. No, the naval warfare of the future is for light, swift ships almost recklessly not defensive and with splendid guns and gunners, they will hit hard and ram, and warfare which is taken to cover on land will abandon it at sea. And the captain, and the engineer, and the gunner will have to be all of the same sort of men, capable headlong men, with brains and no ascertainable social position. They will differ from the officers of the British Navy in the fact that the whole male sex of the nation will have been ransacked to get them. 
the incredible stupidity that closes all but a menial position in the british navy to the sons of those who cannot afford to pay a hundred a year for them for some years necessarily brings the individual quality of the british naval officer below the highest possible quite apart from the deficiencies that must exist on account of the badness of secondary education in england the British naval officer and engineer are not made the best of, good as they are. Indisputably, they might be infinitely better both in quality and training. The smaller German navy, probably, has an ampler pick of men relatively, is far better educated, less confident, and more strenuous. But the abstract navy I am here writing of will be superior to either of these, and like the American, in the absence of any distinction between officers and engineers, the officer will be an engineer. The military advantages of the command of the sea will probably be greater in the future than they have been in the past. A fleet with aerial supports would be able to descend upon any portion of the adversary's coast it chose, and to dominate the country inland for several miles with its gunfire. All the enemy's seacoast towns would be at its mercy. It would be able to effect landing and send raids of cyclist marksmen inland whenever a weak point was discovered. Landings will be enormously easier than they have ever been before. Once a wedge of marksmen has been driven inland, they would have all the military advantages of the defense when it came to eject them. They might, for example, encircle and block some fortified post and force costly and disastrous attempts to relieve it. The defensive country would stand at bay, tethered against any effective counterblow, keeping guns, supplies, and men in perpetual and distressing movement to and fro along its sea frontiers. Its soldiers would get uncertain rest, irregular feeding, unhealthy conditions of all sorts in hastily made camps. The attacking fleet would divide and reunite, break up and vanish, amazingly reappear. The longer the defender's coast, the more wretched his lot. Never before in the world's history was the command of the sea worth what it is now. But the command of the sea is, after all, like military predominance on land, to be ensured only by superiority of equipment in the hands of a certain type of man, a type of man that it becomes more and more impossible to improvise, that a country must live for through many years, and that no country on earth at present can be said to be doing its best possible to make. All this elaboration of warfare lengthens the scale between theoretical efficiency and absolute unpreparedness. There was a time when any tribe that had men and spears was ready for war, and any tribe that had some cunning or emotion at command might hope to discount any little disparity in numbers between itself and its neighbor. Luck and stubbornness and the incalculable counted for much. It was half the battle not to know you were beaten, and it is so still. Even today, a great nation, it seems, may still make its army the plaything of its gentlefolk, abandon important military appointments to feminine intrigue, and trust cheerfully to the homesickness and essential modesty of its influential people, and the simpler patriotism of its colonial dependencies when it comes at last to the bloody and wearisome business of meddling through. But these days of the happy-go-lucky optimist are near their end. War is being drawn into the field of exact sciences. Every additional weapon, every new complication of the art of war, intensifies the need of deliberate preparation and darkens the outlook of a nation of amateurs. Warfare in the future, on sea or land alike, will be much more one-sided than it has ever been in the past, much more of a foregone conclusion. Save for national lunacy, it will be brought about by the side that will win, and because that side knows that it will win. 
more and more it will have the quality of surprise of pitiless revelation instead of the seesaw the bickering interchange of battles of the old time will come swiftly and amazingly blow and blow and blow no pause no time for recovery disasters cumulative and irreparable the fight will never be in practice between equal sides never be that theoretical deadlock we have sketched but a fight between the more efficient and the less efficient between the more inventive and the more traditional while the victors disciplined and grimly intent full of the sombre yet glorious delight of a great thing well done will without shouting or confusion be fighting like one great national body the losers will be taking that pitiless exposure of the helplessness in such manner as their natural culture and character may determine war for the losing side will be an unspeakable pitiable business there will be first of all the coming of the war the wave of excitement the belligerent shouting of the unemployed inefficients the flag waving the secret doubts the eagerness for hopeful news the impatience of the warning voice i seem to see almost as if he were symbolic the gray old general the general who learnt his art of war away in the vanished nineteenth century the altogether too elderly general with his epaulets and decorations his uniform that has still its historical value his spurs and his sword riding along on his obsolete horse by the side of his doomed column above all things he is a gentleman and the column looks at him lovingly with its countless boys' faces and the boy's eyes are infinitely trustful for he has won battles in the old time they will believe in him to the end they have been brought up in their schools to believe in him and his class their mothers have mingled respect for the gentlefolk with the simple doctrines of their faith their first lesson on entering the army was the salute the smart helmets his majesty or some such unqualified person chose for them lie hotly on their young brows and over their shoulders slope their obsolete carelessly sided guns tramp tramp they march doing what they have been told to do incapable of doing anything they have not been told to do trustful and pitiful marching to wounds and disease hunger hardship and death they know nothing of what they are going to meet nothing of what they will have to do religion and the ratepayer and the rights of the parent working through the instrumentality of the best club in the world have kept their souls and minds if not untainted at least only harmlessly veneered with the thinnest sham of training or knowledge tramp tramp they go boys who will never be men rejoicing patriotically in the nation that has thus sent them forth badly armed badly clothed badly led to be killed in some avoidable quarrel by men unseen and beside them an absolute stranger to them a stranger even in habits of speech and thought and at any rate to be shot with them fairly and squarely marches the subaltern the son of the school-burking shareholding class a slightly taller sort of boy as ill-taught as they are in all that concerns the realities of life ignorant of how to get food how to get water how to keep fever down and strength up ignorant of his practical equality with the men beside him carefully trained under the clerical headmaster to use a crib play cricket rather nicely look all right whatever happens believe in his gentility and avoid talking shop the major you see is a man of the world and very pleasantly meets the gray general's eye he is one may remark by the way 
something of an army reformer, without offence, of course, to the court people or the government people. His prospects, if only he were not going to be shot, are brilliant enough. He has written quite cleverly on the question of recruiting, and advocated as much as two pence more a day, and billiard rooms under the chaplain's control. He has invented a military bicycle with a wheel of solid iron that can be used as a shield, and a war correspondent, and, indeed, anyone who writes even the most casual and irresponsible article on military questions is a person worth his cultivating. He is the very life and soul of army reform, as it is known to the governments of the Grey, that is to say, army reform without a single step towards a social revolution. So the gentlemanly old general, the polished drover to the shambles, rides, and is doomed to call and march by, in this vision that haunts my mind. I cannot foresee what such a force will even attempt to do against modern weapons. Nothing can happen but the needless and most wasteful and pitiful killing of these poor lads who make up the infantry battalions, the main mass of all the European armies of today, whenever they come against a sanely organized army. There is nowhere they can come in. There is nothing they can do. The scattered invisible marksmen with their supporting guns will shatter their masses, pick them off individually, cover their line of retreat, and force them into wholesale surrenders. It will be more like herding sheep than actual fighting. Yet the bitterest and cruelest things will have to happen. Thousands and thousands of poor boys will be smashed in all sorts of dreadful ways, and given over to every conceivable form of avoidable hardship and painful disease, before the obvious fact that war is no longer a business for half-trained lads in uniform, led by parson-bred, six-form boys, and men of pleasure, and old men, but an exhaustive demand upon very carefully educated adults for the most strenuous best that is in them, will get its practical recognition. Footnote. There comes to hand as I correct these proofs a very typical illustration of the atmosphere of really almost imbecile patronage in which the British private soldier lives. It is a circular from someone at Lyd, someone who evidently cannot even write English, but who is nevertheless begging for an iron hut in which to inflict lessons on our soldiers. At present, says this circular, it is pretty to see in the home a group of gunners busily occupied in wool work or learning basket making, whilst one of their number sings or recites, and others are playing games or letter writing. But even quite recently, the members of the Bible Reading Union and one of the ladies might have been seen painfully crowded behind screens, choosing the golden text with lowered voices and trying to pray without distraction. Whilst at the other end of the room men were having supper, and halfway down a dozen Irish militia, who don't care to read but are keen on a story, were gathered round another lady, who was telling them an amusing temperance tale, trying to speak so that the Bible readers should not hear her, and yet the Linsters should, was a difficulty. But when the Irishmen begged for a song, difficulty became impossibility, and their friend had to say no. Yet this is just the double work required in soldiers' homes and above all at Lyd, where there is so little safe amusement to be had in camp, and none in the village. These poor youngsters go from this safe amusement, under the loving care of lady workers, this life of limitation, make-believe and spiritual servitude that a self-respecting negro would find intolerable, into a warfare that exacts initiative and a freely acting intelligence from all who take part in it, under the bitterest penalties of shame and death. What can you expect of them? 
and how can you expect any men of capacity and energy any men even of mediocre self-respect to knowingly place themselves under the tutelage of the sort of people who dominate these organized degradations i am amazed the army gets so many capable recruits as it does and while the private lives under these conditions the would-be capable officer stifles amidst equally impossible surroundings he must associate with the uneducated products of the public schools and listen to their chatter about the sports that delight them suffer social indignities from the army women worry and waste money on needless clothes and expect to end by being shamed or killed by some unfairly promoted incapable nothing illustrates the intellectual blankness of the british army better than its absolute dearth of military literature no one would dream of gaining any profit by writing or publishing a book upon such a subject for example as mountain warfare in england because not a dozen british officers would have the sense to buy such a book and yet the british army is continually getting into scrapes in mountain districts a few unselfish men like major peach find time to write an essay or so and that is all on the other hand i find no less than five works in french on this subject in m m chaplets and c's list alone on guerrilla warfare again and after two years of south africa while there is nothing in english but some scattered papers by dr t miller maguire there are nearly a dozen good books in french as a supplement to these facts is the spectacle of the officers of the guards telegraphing to sir thomas lipton on the occasion of the defeat of his shamrock two hard luck be of good cheer brigade of guards wish you every success this is not the foolish enthusiasm of one or two subalterns it is collective they followed that yacht race with emotion is a really important thing to them no doubt the whole mess was in a state of extreme excitement how can capable and active men be expected to live and work between this upper and that nether millstone the british army not only does not attract ambitious energetic men it repels them i must confess that i see no hope either in the rulers the traditions or the manhood of the british regular army to forecast its escape from the bog of ignorance and negligence in which it wallows far better than any of projected reforms would it be to let the existing army severely alone to cease to recruit for it to retain at the expense of its officers assisted perhaps by subscriptions from ascendant people like sir thomas lipton its messes its uniforms its games bands entertainments and splendid memories as an appendage of the court and to create in absolute independence of it battalions and batteries of efficient professional soldiers without social prestige or social distinctions without bands dress uniforms colors chaplains or honorary colonels and to embody these as a real marching army perpetually en route throughout the empire a reading thinking experimenting army under an absolutely distinct war office with its own colleges depots and training camps perpetually ready for war i cannot help but think that if a hint were taken from the turbinia syndicate a few enterprising persons of means and intelligence might do much by private experiment to supplement and replace the existing state of affairs End footnote. Well, in the ampler prospect, even this haunting tragedy of innumerable avoidable deaths is but an incidental thing. They die, and their troubles are over. The larger fact, after all, is the inexorable tendency in things to make a soldier a skilled and educated man, and to link him in sympathy and organization with the engineer and the doctor, and all the continually developing mass of scientifically educated men that the advance of science and mechanism is producing 
we are dealing with the interplay of two worldwide forces that work through distinctive and contrasted tendencies to a common end we have the force of invention insistent upon progress of the peace organization which tends on the one hand to throw out great useless masses of people the people of the abyss and on the other hand to develop a sort of adiposity of functionless wealthy a speculative elephantiasis and to promote the development of a new social order of efficiency only very painfully and slowly amidst these growing and yet disintegrating masses and on the other hand we have the warlike drift of such a social body the inevitable intensification of international animosities in such a body the absolute determination evident in the scheme of things to smash such a body to smash it just as far as it is such a body under the hammer of war that must finally bring about rapidly and under pressure the same result as that to which the peaceful evolution slowly tends while we are as yet only thinking of a physiological struggle of complex reactions and slow absorptions comes war with the surgeon's knife war comes to simplify the issue and line out the thing with knife-like cuts the law that dominates the future is glaringly plain a people must develop and consolidate its educated efficient classes or be beaten in war and give way upon all points where its interests conflict with the interests of more capable people it must foster and accelerate that natural segregation which has been discussed in the third and fourth chapters of these anticipations or perish the war of the coming time will really be won in schools and colleges and universities wherever men write and read and talk together the nation that produces in the near future the largest proportional development of educated and intelligent engineers and agriculturalists of doctors schoolmasters professional soldiers, and intellectually active people of all sorts, the nation that most resolutely picks over, educates, sterilizes, exports, or poisons its people of the abyss, the nation that succeeds most subtly in checking gambling and the moral decay of women and homes that gambling inevitably entails, the nation that by wise interventions, death duties and the like, contrives to expropriate and extinguish incompetent rich families while leaving individual ambitions free the nation in a word that turns the greatest proportion of its irresponsible adiposity into social muscle will certainly be the nation that will be the most powerful in warfare as in peace will certainly be the ascendant or dominant nation before the year two thousand in the long run no heroism and no accidents can alter that no flag-waving, no patriotic leagues, no visiting of essentially petty imperial personages hither and thither, no smashing of the windows of outspoken people, nor seizures of papers and books, will arrest the march of national defeat. And this issue is already so plain and simple, the alternatives are becoming so piteously clear, that even in the stupidest court and the stupidest constituencies, it must presently begin in some dim way to be felt. A time will come when so many people will see this issue clearly that it will gravely affect political and social life. The patriotic party, the particular gang that is of lawyers, brewers, landlords and railway directors that wishes to be dominant, will be forced to become an efficient party in profession at least, will be forced to stimulate and organize that educational and social development that may at last even bring patriotism under control. The rulers of the gray, the democratic politician and the democratic monarch 
will be obliged year by year by the very nature of things to promote the segregation of colors within the gray to foster the power that will finally supersede democracy and monarchy altogether the power of the scientifically educated disciplined specialist and that finally is the power of saints the power of the thing that is provably right it may be delayed but it cannot be defeated in the end it must arrive if not today and among our people then tomorrow and among another people who will triumph in our overthrow this is the lesson that must be learnt that some tongue and kindred of the coming time must inevitably learn but what tongue it will be and what kindred that will first attain this new development opens far more complex and far less certain issues than any we have hitherto considered end of chapter six b recording by christopher taylor